0: Chapter Four of Book Two of The Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Chapter Four of Book Two of Stock Lent at Interest. The stock which is lent at interest is always considered as a capital by the lender. He expects that in due time it is to be restored to him, and that, in the meantime, the borrower is to pay him a certain annual rent for the use of it. The borrower may use it either as a capital, or as a stock reserved for immediate consumption. If he uses it as a capital, he employs it in the maintenance of productive laborers, who reproduce the value with a profit he can in this case both restore the capital and pay the interest without alienating or encroaching upon any other source of revenue if he uses it as a stock reserved for immediate consumption he acts the part of a prodigal and dissipates in the maintenance of the idle what was destined for the support of the industrious He can, in this case, neither restore the capital, nor pay the interest, without either alienating or encroaching upon some other source of revenue, such as the property or the rent of land. The stock which is lent at interest is, no doubt, occasionally employed in both these ways, but in the former much more frequently than in the latter. The man who borrows in order to spend will soon be ruined, and he who lends to him will generally have occasion to repent of his folly to borrow or to lend for such a purpose therefore is in all cases where gross usury is out of the question contrary to the interest of both parties and though it no doubt happens sometimes that people do both the one and the other yet from the regard that all men have for their own interest we may be assured that it cannot happen so frequently as we are sometimes apt to imagine ask any rich man of common prudence to which of the two sorts of people he has lent the greater part of his stock to those who he thinks will employ it profitably, or to those who will spend it idly, and he will laugh at you for proposing the question. Even among borrowers, therefore, not the people in the world most famous for frugality, the number of the frugal and industrious surpasses considerably that of the prodigal and idle. The only people to whom stock is commonly lent, without their being expected to make any very profitable use of it, are country gentlemen, who borrow upon mortgage. Even they scarce ever borrow merely to spend. What they borrow, one may say, is commonly spent before they borrow it. They have generally consumed so great a quantity of goods, advanced to them upon credit by shopkeepers and tradesmen, that they find it necessary to borrow at interest in order to pay the debt. The capital borrowed replaces the capital of those shopkeepers and tradesmen which the country gentlemen could not have replaced from the rents of their estates. It is not properly borrowed in order to be spent, but in order to replace a capital which had been spent before. Almost all loans at interest are made in money, either of paper, or of gold and silver. But what the borrower really wants, and what the lender readily supplies him with, is not the money, but the money's worth, or the goods which it can purchase. If he wants it as a stock for immediate consumption, it is those goods only which he can place in that stock if he wants it as a capital for employing industry it is from those goods only that the industrious can be furnished with the tools materials and maintenance necessary for carrying on their work by means of the loan the lender as it were assigns to the borrower his right to a certain portion of the annual produce of the land and labour of the country to be employed as the borrower pleases the quantity of stock therefore or as it is commonly expressed of money which can be lent at interest in any country is not regulated by the value of the money whether paper or coin which serves as the instrument of the different loans made in that country but by the value of that part of the annual produce which as soon as it comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive labourers is destined not only for replacing the capital but such a capital as the owner does not care to be at the trouble of employing himself as such capitals are commonly lent out and paid back in money they constitute what is called the moneyed interest it is distinct not only from the landed but from the trading and manufacturing interest as in these last the owners themselves employ their own capitals Even in the moneyed interest, however, the money is, as it were, but the deed of assignment, which conveys from one hand to another those capitals which the owners do not care to employ themselves. Those capitals may be greater, in almost any proportion, than the amount of the money which serves as the instrument of their conveyance. The same pieces of money successfully serving for many different loans, as well as for many different purchases. A. For example, lends to W. £1,000 with which W immediately purchases of B £1,000 worth of goods. B, having no occasion for the money himself, lends the identical pieces to X, with which X immediately purchases of C another £1,000 worth of goods. C, in the same manner, and for the same reason, lends them to Y, who again purchases goods with them of D in this same manner the same pieces either of coin or of paper may in the course of a few days serve as the instrument of three different loans and of three different purchases each of which is in value equal to the whole amount of those pieces what the three moneyed men a b and c assign to the three borrowers w x and y is the power of making those purchases in this power consist both the value and the use of the loans The stock, lent by the three moneyed men, is equal to the value of the goods which can be purchased with it, and is three times greater than that of the money with which the purchases are made. Those loans, however, may be all perfectly well secured, the goods purchased by the different debtors being so employed, as in due time, to bring back with the profit an equal value either of coin or of paper and as the same pieces of money can thus serve as the instrument of different loans to three or, for the same reason, to thirty times their value, so they may likewise successively serve as the instrument of repayment. A capital lent at interest may, in this manner, be considered as an assignment from the lender to the borrower of a certain considerable portion of the annual produce, upon condition that the borrower in return shall, during the continuance of the loan, annually assign to the lender a small portion, called the interest and at the end of it a portion equally considerable with that which had originally been assigned to him called the repayment though money either coin or paper serves generally as the deed of assignment both to the smaller and to the more considerable portion it is itself altogether different from what is assigned by it in proportion as that share of the annual produce which as soon as it comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive labourers is destined for replacing a capital increases in any country what is called the moneyed interest naturally increases with it the increase of those particular capitals from which the owners wish to derive a revenue without being at the trouble of employing them themselves naturally accompanies the general increase of capitals, or, in other words, as stock increases, the quantity of stock to be lent at interest grows gradually greater and greater. As the quantity of stock to be lent at interest increases, the interest, or the price which must be paid for the use of that stock, necessarily diminishes, not only from those general causes which make the market price of things commonly diminish as their quantity increases, but from other causes which are peculiar to this particular case. As capitals increase in any country, the profits which can be made by employing them necessarily diminish. It becomes gradually more and more difficult to find within the country a profitable method of employing any new capital. There arises, in consequence, a competition between different capitals, the owner of one endeavoring to get possession of that employment which is occupied by another, But, upon most occasions, he can hope to jostle that other out of this employment by no other means but by dealing upon more reasonable terms. He must not only sell what he deals in somewhat cheaper, but, in order to get it to sell, he must sometimes, too, buy it dearer. The demand for productive labor, by the increase of the funds which are destined for maintaining it, grows every day greater and greater. Laborers easily find employment but the owners of capitals find it difficult to get labourers to employ. Their competition raises the wages of labour and sinks the profits of stock. But when the profits which can be made by the use of a capital are in this manner diminished, as it were, at both ends, the price which can be paid for the use of it, that is, the rate of interest, must necessarily be diminished with them. Mr. Locke, Mr. Law, and mr montesquieu as well as many other writers seem to have imagined that the increase of the quantity of gold and silver in consequence of the discovery of the spanish west indies was the real cause of the lowering of the rate of interest through the greater part of europe those metals they say having become of less value themselves the use of any particular portion of them necessarily became of less value too and consequently the price which could be paid for it this notion, which at first sight seems so plausible, has been so fully exposed by Mr. Hume that it is, perhaps, unnecessary to say anything more about it. The following very short and plain argument, however, may serve to explain more distinctly the fallacy which seems to have misled those gentlemen. Before the discovery of the Spanish West Indies, ten percent seems to have been the common rate of interest through the greater part of Europe. It has since that time, in different countries, sunk to six, five, four, and 3%. Let us suppose that in every particular country the value of silver has sunk precisely in the same proportion as the rate of interest, and that in those countries, for example, where interest has been reduced from 10 to 5%, the same quantity of silver can now purchase just half the quantity of goods which it could have purchased before. This supposition will not, I believe, be found anywhere agreeable to the truth, but it is the most favourable to the opinion which we are going to examine. And, even upon this supposition, it is utterly impossible that the lowering of the value of silver could have the smallest tendency to lower the rate of interest. If one hundred pounds are in those countries now of no more value than fifty pounds were then, ten pounds must now be of no more value than five pounds were then whatever were the causes which lowered the value of the capital the same must necessarily have lowered that of the interest and exactly in the same proportion the proportion between the value of the capital and that of the interest must have remained the same though the rate had never been altered by altering the rate on the contrary the proportion between those two values is necessarily altered if one hundred pounds now are worth no more than fifty pounds were then Five pounds now can be worth no more than two pounds ten shillings were then. By reducing the rate of interest, therefore, from ten to five percent, we give for the use of a capital, which is supposed to be equal to one-half of its former value, an interest which is equal to one-fourth only of the value of the former interest. An increase in the quantity of silver, while that of the commodities circulated by means of it remain the same, could have no other effect than to diminish the value of that metal. The nominal value of all sorts of goods would be greater, but their real value would be precisely the same as before. They would be exchanged for a greater number of pieces of silver, but the quantity of labor which they could command, the number of people whom they could maintain and employ, would be precisely the same. The capital of the country would be the same, though a greater number of pieces might be requisite for conveying any equal portion of it from one hand to another. The deeds of assignment, like the conveyances of a verbose attorney, would be more cumbersome, but the thing assigned would be precisely the same as before, and could produce only the same effects. The funds for maintaining productive labor being the same, the demand for it would be the same. Its prices or wages, therefore, though nominally greater, would really be the same. They would be paid in a greater number of pieces of silver, but they would purchase only the same quantity of goods. The profits of stock would be the same, both nominally and really. The wages of labour are commonly computed by the quantity of silver which is paid to the labourer. When that is increased, therefore, his wages appear to be increased, though they may sometimes be no greater than before. But the profits of stock are not computed by the number of pieces of silver with which they are paid, but by the proportion which those pieces bear to the whole capital employed. Thus, in a particular country, five shillings a week are said to be the common wages of labour, and ten per cent the common profits of stock. But the whole capital of the country being the same as before, the competition between the different capitals of individuals into which it was divided would likewise be the same. They would all trade with the same advantages and disadvantages. The common proportion between capital and profit, therefore, would be the same and consequently, the common interest of money, what can commonly be given for the use of money, being necessarily regulated by what can commonly be made by the use of it. Any increase in the quantity of commodities annually circulated within the country, while that of the money which circulated them remained the same, would, on the contrary, produce many other important effects, besides that of raising the value of the money. The capital of the country, though it might nominally be the same, would really be augmented. It might continue to be expressed by the same quantity of money, but it would command a greater quantity of labor. The quantity of productive labor which it could maintain and employ would be increased, and consequently the demand for that labor. Its wages would naturally rise with the demand, and yet might appear to sink. They might be paid with a smaller quantity of money, but that smaller quantity might purchase a greater quantity of goods than a greater had done before. The profits of stock would be diminished, both really and in appearance. The whole capital of the country being augmented, the competition between the different capitals of which it was composed would naturally be augmented along with it. The owners of those particular capitals would be obliged to content themselves with a smaller proportion of the produce of that labor which their respective capitals employed. The interest of money, keeping pace always with the profits of stock, might in this manner be greatly diminished, though the value of money, or the quantity of goods which any particular sum could purchase, was greatly augmented. In some countries the interest of money has been prohibited by law. But as something can everywhere be made by the use of money, something ought everywhere to be paid for the use of it this regulation instead of preventing has been found from experience to increase the evil of usury the debtor being obliged to pay not only for the use of the money but for the risk which his creditor runs by accepting a compensation for that use he is obliged if one may say so to insure his creditor from the penalties of usury In countries where interest is permitted, the law, in order to prevent the extortion of usury, generally fixes the highest rate which can be taken without incurring a penalty. This rate ought always to be somewhat above the lowest market price, or the price which is commonly paid for the use of money by those who can give the most undoubted security. If this legal rate should be fixed below the lowest market rate, the effects of this fixation must be nearly the same as those of a total prohibition of interest the creditor will not lend his money for less than the use of it is worth and the debtor must pay him for the risk which he runs by accepting the full value of that use if it is fixed precisely at the lowest market price it ruins with honest people who respect the laws of their country the credit of all those who cannot give the very best security and obliges them to have recourse to exorbitant usurers in a country such as great britain where money is lent to government at three per cent and to private people upon good security at four and four and a half the present legal rate five per cent is perhaps as proper as any the legal rate it is to be observed though it ought to be somewhat above ought not to be much above the lowest market-rate If the legal rate of interest in Great Britain, for example, was fixed so high as eight or ten percent, the greater part of the money which was to be lent would be lent to prodigals and projectors, who alone would be willing to give this high interest. Sober people, who will give for the use of money no more than a part of what they are likely to make by the use of it, would not venture into the competition. A great part of the capital of the country would thus be kept out of the hands which were most likely to make a profitable and advantageous use of it and thrown into those which were most likely to waste and destroy it. Where the legal rate of interest, on the contrary, is fixed but a very little above the lowest market rate, sober people are universally preferred, as borrowers, to prodigals and projectors. The person who lends money gets nearly as much interest from the former as he dares to take from the latter, and his money is much safer in the hands of the one set of people than in those of the other. A great part of the capital of the country is thus thrown into the hands in which it is most likely to be employed with advantage. No law can reduce the common rate of interest below the lowest ordinary market rate at the time when that law is made. Notwithstanding the Edict of 1766, by which the French king attempted to reduce the rate of interest from 5 to 4%, money continued to be lent in France at 5%, the law being evaded in several different ways the ordinary market price of land it is to be observed depends everywhere upon the ordinary market rate of interest the person who has a capital from which he wishes to derive a revenue without taking the trouble to employ it himself deliberates whether he should buy land with it or lend it out at interest the superior security of land together with some other advantages which almost everywhere attend upon this species of property will generally dispose him to content himself with a smaller revenue from land than what he might have by lending out his money at interest. These advantages are sufficient to compensate a certain difference of revenue, but they will compensate a certain difference only. And if the rent of land should fall short of the interest of money by a greater difference, nobody would buy land, which would soon reduce its ordinary price. On the contrary, if the advantages should much more than compensate the difference, everybody would buy land which again would soon raise its ordinary price. When interest was at 10%, land was commonly sold for 10 or 12 years purchase. As interest sunk to 6, 5, and 4%, the price of land rose to twenty, five, and 20, and 30 years purchase. The market rate of interest is higher in France than in England, and the common price of land is lower. In England, it commonly sells at 30, in France at 20 years purchase. End of Book 2, Chapter 4